Thanks for tuning in today. Please visit NemoursWellBeyond.org to catch all our episodes and sign up for our monthly newsletter. You can also use the voicemail feature on the website to leave a message with your episode ideas or questions. You just might be featured on an upcoming episode of the show. Without further ado, let's go. Well Beyond Medicine. Welcome to Well Beyond Medicine, the Nemours Children's Health Podcast. Each week, we'll explore anything and everything related to the 80% of child health impacts that occur outside the doctor's office. I'm your host, Carol Vassar, and now that you're here, let's go. Let's go, oh, oh, well beyond medicine. The Nemours Well Beyond Medicine podcast team recently spent time talking with experts at a conference called Hot Topics in Neonatology. And we thought, what a great title for a podcast series. This episode marks the first in a four-part series featuring topics centered on the world of neonatology. That's the branch of medicine concerned with the care and development of newborn babies, especially those babies who are sick or premature. We'll talk with those in the know about the latest treatments in amniotic fluid replacement, quality improvement initiatives, protocols that have proven effective in saving the lives of preterm babies, and the effects of neonatal abstinence syndrome. And you'll hear the acronym NICU, Neonatal Intensive Care Unit, a lot. We begin in the NICU, actually, in 2003. A place Hot Topics in neonatology presenter Deborah DeSenza never thought she'd visit, though she had an eerie feeling about it. Deborah was 30 weeks pregnant when she gave birth to her daughter, Becky. This is their story of persistence, resilience, and paying it forward by helping and supporting other pregnant people and their preterm babies. Here's Deborah DeSenza. I was uh, seven and a half months pregnant, and the month before, I had been to the OB, and I said, I'm worried this baby's coming early. And she looked at me, she's like, oh, you're doing great. No, 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 it's your first baby, you'll be late. I said, well, I've been reading the labor and delivery books, you know, the parent-to-be books, intensely. I'm worried this baby's coming early. And she's like, no, 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 the baby will be late. Month later, I'm staring at Becky in the NICU in her incubator. We were an hour outside of town, and I felt my bladder let go, or so I thought, in the car. We were coming back from a family trip, and I just asked my husband to please pull over to a bathroom, as a pregnant woman would. Didn't say anything to anybody. I was so embarrassed. And I'm thinking, oh, God, I've had an accident. This is horrible. And then... I got out of the car on my own, went into a grocery store, all the way back to the bathroom. I'm all alone in there, and I pulled down, and I, it was very obvious. I was gushing fluid. Um, I Your could water see, broke. Oh, my water broke, yeah. I sat there going, no, I'm crying, and I'm very upset. And I knew I was having a girl, and we knew the name was going to be Becky. I'm like, Becky, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm, like, crying. I'm trying to call people in the car. Um, on cell phones that honestly in 2003 did not have the greatest range. I was getting voicemails. And I'm like, forget it. I'm just going to clean up as best I can and get up front. So I went up front. I was going to head to the car, but I happened, happened to pass by the grocery store front office. And I said, turned to them. I said, um, 
may I borrow your phone? And they said, uh, sure. I said, it's long distance. I need to call my doctor. I believe I'm in preterm labor. I mean, I was literally that focused. I was hysterical in the bathroom, now zeroed in focus. It was like Becky was in there going, okay, come on, come on, chop, chop. <laughs> and so I was calling the OB's office, which is the one thing I could remember. <laughs> I could remember their number. And um, they asked me, is there anything else you can do, we can do for you? And I said, Yes, could you please ask my husband in the green Durango in the parking lot to come in here? And this very, is the people at the grocery store. Yeah, and their jaws are hitting the floor, and they're just like, oh, my God, they're hysterical. So they went out, and as I was leaving a message with the answering service, this was on a Saturday, as it would, um, yeah, they came in, and suddenly my brother-in-law and my husband, they heard the whole thing. And as I left the message, we got off the phone, and we got in the car. They said, we're getting to the hospital now. We were an hour outside of town, and my husband got us there in 45 minutes, weaving through a traffic jam, of course. And we were like, why didn't we take the keys away from him? <laughs> but he got you there. He got me there. I got checked in, all that stuff. And really, I have to say, labor and delivery was a rocky road for me because I had a nurse bully me and say, you know, did you do this? Did you feel this? I said, maybe. I don't know. Well, if you had come in here before now, we could have stopped this. And I'm like... How's that helping me right now? I don't know what's going on. And I'm thinking back. I was a month before talking to my OB. I believe this baby's coming early. We eventually got me into labor and delivery, and um, yeah, they didn't say much to me about what was going on. Um, eventually, it was like, it was 20, 24, 30 hours, 30 hours in labor and delivery, and the contractions came and went, so I wasn't in I wasn't excruciating pain the whole time. Thank God. Uh, but, Still. yeah, and they told me that I would be there um, for six weeks or until I delivered. So I was very focused on the six weeks, not thinking I was about to deliver, thinking I had gotten to the right place. They gave me the shots to help, the steroid shots to help with her lungs. And I was very aware of what they were doing. I was very well, it's like textbook. I could hear it. I was like, okay, they're doing this, they're doing this. And then contractions got a little heavier a little bit the next day, and Next thing I know, that night, we had a neonatologist come visit. And I was like, why are you here? And he said, if she were born right now, she would be fine. Any questions? And I just stared at him like, I didn't know you were coming. I don't have a clue what to ask you. I mean, I literally just stared at him like, uh, no. It was so awkward because 10 minutes later, Becky was born. I was in full labor. I knew I was in full labor, but nobody was saying anything to me. They were trying to stop it, quote-unquote. Right. And they told me when they came in, the nurse said, you will be delivering tonight. And I look up at the clock, and it's 20 minutes to midnight. Becky was there at 10 of. <laughs> it was that. Oh. It was fast, and it was also very violent um, because I was pushing her out. I didn't. My body was doing everything. I didn't know what the heck to do. I hadn't even had Lamaze yet. I hadn't had the maternity tour, nothing. So it was awkward. <laughs> And this is your first child. My first child, so I have no idea. And on the way to the hospital, I asked my sister, I'm like, Miriam, what is labor, and when do I ask for the epidural? <laughs> Very calm, <laughs> cool, calm, and collected. I'm assuming there was no epidural at that no. point. No, I asked the nurse for it, and it I, she, turned, she said, you'll be delivering tonight. I'm like, but I haven't had Lamaze yet. Like, that's an excuse. No, I can't deliver. No, nope, can't happen because I haven't had Lamaze yet. Epidural. No, we don't have time for that. Wait, what? <laughs> and she taught me Lamaze in five seconds. I got to thank her later at a conference I spoke at. Oh, that's wonderful. And I was so grateful. So they whisk 
Becky, off, off the to the NICU. My husband follows. Yeah, I, they showed her to me real quick for the imprinting, which was perfect. Um, the entire team cheered when, I, when Becky came out and she had the tiny little kitten cry. It was so affirming. And so I felt really good. I'm like, okay, we're going to take her down to the NICU. We're going to take care of her, da-da-da. That was awesome. And then my husband decided it was important to get me down on the stretcher instead of to my room, take me straight to the NICU to see Becky. What was that like? Overwhelming. Um, I'm all on all these drugs. I'm exhausted. It's been 30 hours. I had only four hours of sleep maybe at one point. But really, it was, uh, it was overwhelming. Bright, bright lights, alarms going off. Becky, with her lusty little cry, was, was screaming, God bless her. But it sent just shivers up my spine, and my body started reacting, and I'm dead tired. I can't function. I can't get out of bed. I can't do anything. They have me in this stretcher, and my husband's taking pictures of me. I'm like, really? <laughs> and so, um, yeah, she was, she was screaming. My body was responding, and I, that was traumatic. That was really hard. I was like, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? I got to protect you. What do I got to do? And so that mom instinct was already there, and I was just, I mean, I look back at that, and I go, Wow. I was advocating, was trying to figure out, because I felt like a mess. I always thought I was a complete mess. Visiting her was really hard because it was overwhelming. The noise in the NICU, the alarms going off, Becky screeching, turning blue, all these things. And the whole NICU stay was extremely overwhelming for me, and I was very afraid. I was afraid for her. I was afraid for our family. I didn't know what the future held. And, but they were like, she's doing great, she's doing great, and then she wasn't doing great. So we're a total of a 38-day stay in the NICU, and um, she had her honeymoon that first week. I got to hold her. It was awesome. Um, but it was also frightening because she was so light. I was so used to my nieces and my nephew at the time who were monster babies. How much did she weigh at birth? She was 2 pounds, 15 and a half ounces, so just under 3 pounds. And it really... I knew that. I was like, light as a feather, and all I could think of was, Becky, be heavy, be heavy, Becky. That first NICU experience mm-hmm. and those that were subsequent, mm-hmm. talk about the negative and the positive of being a parent in the NICU with a child who is less than three pounds. Well, the positive was definitely being able to hold her for the first time. The negative of that was having to be told when I could hold her and being told that I have to, they have to wait until, you know, they put them in my arms, but they have to work around all the wires and everything. And Becky didn't weigh heavily on me because she was so light, but all the responsibility and the sense of what have I done, that weighed on me. Even before then, when she was in her incubator for the full week, I could only put my hands in and do the womb hold, mm-hmm. and it was that was about it. I mean, I could take her temperature, but it just, I felt ridiculous. It was like, am I the best thing for Becky? And my mother-in-law, when she came up, she said, I wonder when they'll be, you'll be able to do kangaroo care. She was a former RN. She had taken care of preemies in the maternal unit and in the nursery. And then, you know, I kept saying to the team, kangaroo care. I want to do kangaroo care. I I didn't even know what it was. I just wanted to do it because I'm like, I must do this. And they did. They said, finally, it was probably a couple weeks later. And they told me, oh, come in with, you know, make sure you shower. Come in with, you know, a long button-down shirt, and we'll do that. So (laughs) 
<laughs> Describe kangaroo care for those who okay. aren't aware of what it is. So kangaroo care is skin-to-skin care. They place the baby on the chest of the mother, and the infant hears the heartbeat, which is a very soothing, calming feeling for the baby. That's what they're used to, and it also helps them regulate like their breathing, their heart rate. It's just very calming for them. They can go into a very deep sleep. I'm not going to get real technical here because I don't know enough about that. But, but there's a lot of great benefits. It helps with their growth. And most of all, it helps with the bond. And I have to say, the first time they placed her on my chest, and I told her this later, I was like, Becky, they placed you on my chest and you were like a big clammy insect (laughs) because she was so, and it it helps her. She learned to thermoregulate. So her temperature then attuned itself to mine. And so very quickly she got comfortable and I couldn't see her, but my husband's right next to me. He's like, Deb, you need to see this. Well, I can't, Greg. (laughs) She's right down there. Take, you know, do you have a mirror? He took pictures and the pictures he took are some of the best pictures because you could see her face, and I'm just very calmly sitting there with her, and her face is turned toward the camera, and she's just got her eyes closed. Bliss. She was out. She was happily asleep, and I'm like, I want to do this. I want to do this. <laughs> like, every day. We want. Greg did kangaroo care. I did kangaroo care. It wasn't always as blissful, because there were some alarms that went off, so that scared me to death. That meant an awful lot to me, that I could actually have that effect on her, and that I wasn't what I felt like as a failure. I felt like I'd failed her in the pregnancy and I'd failed her in the delivery and I was sitting here, what else was I failing at? And it just, I I really wanted to be there for her and do what I could do, but I was also just trying to reconcile everything that had happened. I hadn't processed everything yet, so I was just a wreck. Talk about the importance of advocating as a parent, as a mom, Mm -hmm. for your premature child. Um, I had to really understand the lingo, and that was hard because I wasn't a medical doctor, and I'm thinking, what do I ask for? How do I do something? How do I help her? And I think the hardest part for me was when it came to breastfeeding. I attempted breastfeeding. I didn't understand how that all worked, first child, and I assumed that she just wasn't going to. And it stopped with lesson one. Nobody said to me, you just need to try again tomorrow and da-da-da. No one said a word. I said, I'll just keep pumping. And that's all I needed. I just kept pumping, pumping, pumping. Yeah, she ended up with sepsis later, and she got really sick. We almost lost her. Oh, no. And after that, the nurse that was caring for her came at me and said, why aren't you breastfeeding? And I'm like, what? And she she just said, you know, it's better for the baby. And I'm like, but I'm pumping. And she said, no, breastfeeding's better. We all did it with our kids. And I I had no snappy comeback, but my thought was later, you know, did you have a preterm infant? Did you go through this? And not every mother can breastfeed. No, I know. Let's remember that. I was I was filling our freezer in in, in the kitchen. We had to buy a full freezer for the basement. That's how much pumping was happening. And I felt so proud of myself. And then I felt deflated hearing that. So I think advocating was also learning my limits. I had to talk to my in-laws that night, and I said, I don't know what to do. And my mother-in-law was like, you get that nurse away from your child. So I happened to know the medical director already. So I called him, and I said, you get her off the care of our child. And that was the best thing in the world. 
But advocating is so many things other than just getting up and speaking up for yourself. It's also communicating your frustrations and your needs to, like, your in-laws and saying, I'm not sure what to do. And, you know, it was a healthy discussion. It was the best thing I could have done at the time. So, yeah. And then I think as far as the rest of the NICU stay, it was really just trying to learn the lingo and trying to figure out how to talk to the team. It sounds like you had a good support system. Your in-laws, yeah. your immediate family, it sounds like your husband. your husband, your brother-in-law, your sister-in-law. Yeah. And then you developed a support system and provided support for other mothers yes. in similar situations. How important is that? It is very cathartic to be able to give back because all the things that I feel like I didn't do, I can help them feel empowered in a way that I didn't. And while I did as we headed out the door and as we went home, that definitely kicked in. The NICU stay was really very intimidating for me. So I I remind parents that they are the expert of their child and that they knew that baby first. So while the medical team, they are the medical experts of that child. So you have to work with the team together to do that, to get that baby home. And, you know, the big thing, and I say also to do kangaroo care and why that's important and to sing to your baby and talk to and love your baby. And if your baby's on uh, the ventilator, then just sing to them quietly. Read to them quietly. You're still there. That's they know it. your voice already. Mm-hmm. They know so. your smell, too. I mean, yeah. I remember hearing that going, really? So, yeah. Now, you are the co-author. It's in its second edition, which is amazing, yeah. of a book called Preemie Parents, Survival Guide to the NICU. Yep. Give us some high-level advice for parents who might be listening right now or people who know parents of preemies that they can use if they find themselves unexpectedly visiting a NICU, walking into a NICU with a new baby. It's okay to cry, and it's okay to feel. Give yourself that moment. When you meet your child, just know that this is not what you wanted. This is not the normal, but this is your new normal. So how do you work around that? You find ways to bond with your baby. That's the biggest thing. Bond with the baby because it feels so alien to put your hands into the portholes of the incubator and be. That's, that's loving your child. While your friends have that picture-perfect moment on Facebook with the hair done and makeup and all that and the tiny baby. Yeah, okay. Facebook is not real. No, no, it's not. So, and to realize that and to realize that everybody has things that they kind of hide and they don't tell you about. It's self-care. It's about making sure that while you visit the baby, that you also take time away from the baby because that baby needs you at your best when you show up, not at your worst. And you can't live at the hospital. You just eat, try not to. But if you're having trouble with things, find out where there's a support group. Sometimes they're in the hospital. Sometimes they're outside the hospital. That can be a big help to meet other parents. That was how I found Premies Today, which was a support group in my area it was my lifeline when Becky was still in the NICU and had gotten so sick. And I found their newsletter in the waiting room. And I was like, oh, thank God. I felt like somebody understood. They understood everything. They, whether or not we had the same gestational ages or weights or conditions or anything else, we understood the trauma and we understood the fear. And yet we could also celebrate the little joys. Like she gained an ounce or she's in a bassinet. Uh, I think the biggest thing is to make it clear to the team, how can you work together to help the baby? And that, that 
brushes aside a lot of differences and any potential blockades of relationship with the team. The nurses are there. They care greatly for these babies. Not everyone's perfect. The doctors, same thing. They want this baby to go home. They're all about success. And, but that also depends on what your version of success is. Not every baby goes home looking 100% perfect. This is not reality, and we love our babies no matter what. So Becky is 20. 20 years old. And I still go, oh, my God. <laughs> you're presenting here on how being a preemie affects mm-hmm. young adults. Mm-hmm. And Becky's in that period. I want to ask, first and foremost, how is she? She's good. She's an amazing young lady, and... Yeah, it's been a journey. I will definitely say that. She, no one really told us the roadmap of what it was to go home and what it was going to be like in the first five years, the first 10 years. All the neonatal therapist told us was there'll be delays. Well, Becky went home on oxygen and a monitor, so we had to learn CPR, infant CPR. She got off the equipment at one point. It just took a lot longer. She had a lot of feeding issues. That should have been a sign to us that there was trouble ahead. As she got better and better, she had horrible reflux, and um, we were working with the anemia and everything. We were following up with the pulmonologist, the ophthalmologist, the cardiologist, every ologist you could possibly think of. And, you know, but we were getting good reports. And then we went months and months, and finally the pediatrician said, the day that Becky qualified for early intervention at 18 months of age, it is the day he told us she had asthma, reactive airway disease. And I'm like, you're kidding me. It was just like punch, punch. You know, it was quite a day. I remember just being like, I don't know if I can handle this. But we we got through everything. She went through early intervention. She went through child find preschool. And she entered kindergarten where she got diagnosed with autism at six years old. Still had feeding issues. So we assumed the autism was the reason she had feeding issues. ADHD in second grade. And then in third and fourth and all that, I was trying to figure out what was going on with her walking gait. I've been talking about it for years with different specialists and asking very quietly. And um, at 11, I went to an, we went to an orthopedic surgeon and I said to her very quietly while Becky was looking away and I said, is it possible she has CP, cerebral palsy? And oh, well, she does. It's really, 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 really mild. Okay. No diagnosis, nothing. We went back for our rescript of her orthotics, the, the little inserts in the shoes that help with gait. And yes, this is working. Can we get a rescript? Okay. Didn't think about it. And this newer doctor in the practice had Becky run up and down the hallway. And she said, as she's doing that, I could see things had gotten worse. And I'm like, uh, and, and from beside me, the doctor goes, how early was she? And I went, Oh. 30 weeks. And she, she brought Becky back in. She said, Becky, get up on the exam table. And she said, she grabbed her leg and she did click her ankle. And she said, see that? I'm like, yeah. I mean, the stiffness. Mm. She said, that's spasticity. I'm like, really? I had no idea what spasticity would look like. I assumed it was the jerky movements. I didn't know. So I said, okay, she has what? She was 13 and a half. <laughs> She had just had her bat mitzvah six months before. So I'm sitting here taking this all in. The doctor's like starting to talk about ideas of treatments and stuff. And I'm or like, for CP, mm-hmm. like Botox injections and clipping heel cords. And I'm like, Ugh. I'm still reeling from the information. I'm like, well, I'm glad we have this information. Uh. <laughs> so, and then Becky's next to me. She goes, mom, what's going on? I'm like, 
I turned to her, I'm like, oh my God, I can't hide this from you. No. You're, you're 13 and a half. So the doctor jumped in, thank God. I mean, it's just one thing after another. She had feeding issues. We had to go see a feeding clinic for that. I mean, you name it. We've been through it. And nobody prepared us for this when we, we left the NICU or even talked about it in the NICU. And I think it's just really important for parents to know they have a voice. If they have a concern, their gut will tell them an awful lot. And if their gut, they don't know exactly what it is, go find out. Go ask people. That's what their expertise is, but just say, this is my feeling. I'm not sure something's right with X, Y, Z. Would you like to see better and more communication between parents and clinicians, particularly in the NICU, but all along the spectrum of that, you know, going through infancy, toddlerhood, all the way through adolescence? Yes, because I'm working on Premie Crystal Ball, which is a data portal that will actually help communicate long-term outcomes. So you could have parents come in and put information. You could have the adults come in and put in their information. You can have any number of those scenarios, and you can pull the data together. And when you have enough of a sample size, you can start providing outcomes, not only to the parents, but also to the, each of the adults so that they know. There are a lot of adults walking around. I was preterm, so I was three weeks. Well, I was told I was three weeks early, and then I found out after my mother passed away I was a month early, and that was in 1967. So I'm not aware of any NICU stay. I'm not aware of anything. There was no NICU. I do not have newborn photos. That might be a clue. I have no idea. So, But I will say that the data needs to be a beginning to a conversation, not the conversation it's about building trust. It's like you have to build trust between the parent and the professional. And it doesn't happen when you're talking about taking away support from a baby. It's conversation one that you have together. You build that trust. That's so important. It's just everybody's busy. Mm-hmm. I get it. But we're talking life and death. And we're talking about parents who were dreaming of baby birthday parties and, you know, and going home outfits and all that stuff, and now they're here and everything is so foreign that they don't know. They don't, like me, they don't know what to ask. You're a very passionate advocate. What's next for you? For me, creamy crystal ball, definitely. I'm working on a after the NICU version of the book because I see that as its own book. I am the co-founder of the Alliance for Black NICU Families which actually has racial and health equity in the form of a wearable breast pump for free in the United States. And then I'm also working on the Books for Healing Partnership. It's basically patient education in the form of a children's story. It could be any healthcare scenario. It doesn't have to be pediatrics. It doesn't have to be neonates. It could be adults. It could be anything. And just basically telling the journey or the condition or whatever it is in a children's story Everybody loves a children's story. And in the back of the book are some resources and other things. So they're educating themselves. So you found a life's mission. I have. My parents would be so proud. Talk about, briefly, talk about the the equity issue in in preemies. Are we looking at a higher incidence of prematurity in certain populations? Talk about that. So in the African-American population, 20% of all preterm births are African-American babies. And these are folks that do not necessarily have high-resource hospitals. They may even have healthcare deserts. They may not have access to all the high-end types of treatments. 
things that do not necessarily get covered by insurance or Medicaid, things that are actually very costly, the hospitals won't even provide. And so you have, you have parents who then have another issue. They may have transportation issues trying to get to and from the hospital, which then leads to the systemic racism, which is they get accused of, why aren't you coming to see your child? I mean, it's, it's a double-edged sword. It's, it, it like, it's like me being told I wasn't, why aren't you breastfeeding? Without realizing there's so many different things involved with breastfeeding, So for that mom, it could be she's working a full-time job. She has to go back to work to feed her family. She's got other kids she has to care for. She's any number of things. And it could be, you know, she doesn't have a car. She doesn't have bus money. She, you name it, it could be any number of things. And we make a lot of judgments and assumptions. We have to meet them where they're at and give them the access in the best way possible and you know what? The best thing they can do is judgment can just go out the window. I always tell people that NICU should never have guilt in it. There should be no, no guilt in the NICU. And I'm very clear about that because you don't want to beat parents when they're already down. No. That's not, you don't kick them. And we don't want to kick back to the professionals. And, but we will because we'll feel defensive. So we got to meet together somehow and find a way and do it gently. And what do you need? What can I help with? There's tons of resources out. There's tons of programs and other things. And what I have found is the NICU social workers, they spend all their time doing paperwork. Mm -hmm. So in thinking about that, if we could just find a better way and employ maybe an extra person to do that, I mean, they would do phenomenally. Anything I haven't asked that you'd want to share? (sighs) Yes, I do. To the families that have lost babies, of which a number of them I've worked through things with them. That's really hard. I had a father in Italy um, reach out about a year and a half or so ago, and I think his child was 22, 23 weeks, and his daughter died at 17 months of age in Italy in the NICU, still in the NICU. I don't know how that happened, but yeah, and he was just traumatized. And so every speech I go to, I always say the name Georgia. And Georgia is always on my mind. I tell it, the father, I always write him and say, I said her name today. Deborah DeSenza is an author and advocate who has dedicated her life to creating community for families with premature infants. She is co-founder of the Alliance for Black NICU Families and CEO of the Premium World Foundation, whose mission is to create and curate equitable access for underserved populations to patient education, advocacy tools, and outcomes data specific to the preemie population. Her daughter, Becky, is now 20 and is completing community college courses that she started at age 14. She plans to continue her education at George Mason University, majoring in art and game design. Deborah had this to say about her daughter. She's an amazing young lady. She's very kind. She's really a sweetheart. Well beyond medicine. We thank Deborah DeSenza for sharing her story with us. Looking for the support resources Deborah mentioned? Visit preemieworld.com. That's P-R-E-E-M-I-E world, all one word, dot com. If you're a parent or caregiver with a NICU experience to share, we'd love to hear it. 
Leave us a voicemail at nemoureswellbeyond.org. There you'll also find all of our previous podcast episodes. You can subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. That's nemoureswellbeyond.org. Our production team for this episode includes Che Parker, Susan Masucci, Cheryl Munn, and Yari Payne. Our Hot Topics and Neonatology series continues next time as we talk about a new treatment for a nearly universally fatal condition marked by a dangerously low level of amniotic fluid during pregnancy. I'm Carol Vassar. Until next time, remember, we can change children's health for good, well beyond medicine. Let's go!